The Fanny Mechanic Show with Dr. Tash, where we dive in, go deep, and open up about women's health. Hello and welcome everyone to this week's episode of The Fanny Mechanic Show. I am your host, Dr. Natasha Andriatis, aka Dr. Tash. This week we dive into the topic of medicinal cannabis. We go deep with lead researcher Justin Sinclair. Justin opens up about the cannabis plant, its rich and complex history, pharmacological actions and varied widespread uses. He also talks about his developing PhD research looking at cannabis and endometriosis. After chatting with Justin, I realized that one of the main barriers to people accessing cannabis and its many benefits are people like me, doctors. As Justin points out, we doctors are the gatekeepers, yet most of us know very little about the plant, how we can use it, and how we can go about prescribing medicinal cannabis. I'd press doctors and all healthcare professionals to be open-minded and proactive about educating themselves when it comes to medicinal cannabis. Why should patients miss out because of our lack of knowledge or biases? In the future, I hope to organise workshops with Justin and other gynaecologists to provide education in medicinal cannabis. Watch this space. A bit about Justin Sinclair. Why is he the right person to be educating us? Well, apart from the fact that he is hugely passionate about this topic, and you'll see this shortly when you listen to the episode, Justin Sinclair is a pharmacognosticist. That's Greek for he has expert knowledge of the active chemical components of medicinal plants. He is a research fellow at Nickham Health Research Institute housed at Western Sydney University, where he heads up the Australian Medicinal Cannabis Research and Education Collaboration. He also leads the Scientific Advisory Board for the Medicinal Cannabis Patient-Centred Charity and advocacy group United in Compassion. After completing his master's studies in herbal medicine at the Faculty of Pharmacy at Sydney University in 2004, Justin has been lecturing on the topics of phytochemistry, botany, and integrated pharmacology since 2005, and has worked as an industry consultant since 2006. His main areas of research focus in medicinal cannabis for female reproductive conditions But his other scientific interests include ethnopharmacology, that is looking at how certain ethnic groups use plant compounds, ethnobotany, phytochemistry, and psychopharmacology. He is currently working towards completing a PhD, investigating the safety, tolerability, and effectiveness of medicinal cannabis for endometriosis-associated pain, and has delivered over 80 talks since 2016 on the topics of medicinal cannabis and the endocannabinoid system to healthcare practitioners and the general public in Australia and New Zealand. That's why he's the man to be talking to. I'll be chatting to Justin again in another episode on the myths and controversies around cannabis and its use. So please subscribe, you don't want to miss that episode. But for now, I hope you enjoy our chat. Justin, thank you so much for joining me today. To talk about uh, an amazing plant. Um, But before we dive in, I wanted to ask you a bit more about your background and and how it was that you actually ended up doing what you're doing now. Because it sounds like you've done quite a few interesting things. Um, You've been in America. I'm sure you've seen quite a bit. Can you share some snippets with us? Yeah, look, I have. I've been very lucky um, to have quite a, a varied uh, and interesting career so far, particularly in herbal medicine. Um, so looking at uh, 
all of that, though, it's largely been because we've been mentored by, you know, many uh, amazing human beings, um, which has given me these uh, chances for these experiences. But largely when I was really young, I think, is when it started. I was always fascinated by plants. Um, back when I was about five or six, uh, my parents and my little sister, we lived up in Jabiru in the Northern Territory. I got to spend some time with the uh, Indigenous Australians there and, and uh, particularly the kids my own age. And I was just so fascinated by how they knew what plants they could pick fruit from and how they used termites to fish and just how in tune with the land that they were. And it really, really stuck with me um, because right throughout um, my education, once I finished year 12, um, I went to go and study uh, forestry and uh, study things like botany and dendrology, the study of trees and Soon as they started giving us hard hats and chainsaws, I realized that wasn't really um, <laughs> what I wanted. And so I uh, went over to the United States and, again, just so fortunate to meet people. I'm very serendipitous, um, but Native American Indians. Um, I spent uh, quite a bit of time with a variety of different uh, people from different tribes, you know, such as the, the Cree, uh, Chiricahua Apache, um, some of the Sioux. Um, and a lot of the elders from, from Mexico um, bringing their traditional knowledge base of medicines, uh, particularly plant medicines, obviously, up to uh, the northern Northern America. So I got to learn um, at the feet of these uh, elders and people and and uh, just, yeah, I started ever since. And so I learned all of that as much as I could uh, from them. And then it was time for me to come home. So I... Uh, came home and, and started my formal studies, um, completed some uh, an advanced diploma in naturopathy, uh, diplomas in botanical medicine, clinical nutrition. Um, I did a master's in herbal medicine at the Faculty of Pharmacy at Sydney University, which uh, was fantastic because it gave me a lot of the science that I really needed and wanted. Um, and that you know, basically uh, helps me develop a love of science. And uh, I often enjoy uh, seeing how our modern scientific understanding of plants and plant compounds validates the use of many of the plants um, from a traditional use perspective. Um, so, yeah, it's, uh, I, I love both. I have a, a foot, or I try and have a foot firmly in, in both the traditional uh, medicine camps and uh, the modern scientific. But um, since then, I've largely been lecturing um, in areas like integrated pharmacology, uh, pharmacognosy, which is uh, my main area, so that's uh, the study uh, of uh, drugs that come from plants and natural compounds, and worked as an industry consultant um, since around 2006. Um, managed to write a few book chapters here and there on herbal medicine, pain management, and one of my favorite topics being uh, drug-herb interactions, and uh, have managed to squeeze in a few uh, peer-reviewed journal articles here and there, but that's mainly focusing on the uh, plant of interest that brings us together today, and and I think that uh, you know, over all the herbal medicines that I've had a chance to read and research, the hundreds of them uh, over the years, uh, over twenty years, um, nothing really uh, can compare to the complexity and the history and the uh, chemistry um, that cannabis has. Are they still running the Masters of Herbal Medicine at Sydney Uni under that pharmacy group? No, that's uh, I. Th I can't remember when um, that stopped, but it, um, I was I think one of the uh, second cohorts to go through uh, back in the early two thousands, and it was such a great course. Um, the the team 
um, you know, Basil Rufagalis and uh, Dr. Lee, um, all of them that ran that course did such a, an amazing job with it. It's a shame. I was thinking of doing that when I, I read about that. That's a, that's a real shame. Are there any other courses <laughs> that you can do that are similar to that one that you know exist? Not, not to my knowledge, no. Um, it, it was um, very centred, obviously. It had a, a really great background in traditional uh, understanding of medicines, particularly from a traditional Chinese medicine perspective, uh, which I found incredibly um, interesting. And then there was all the science, the pharmaceutical science, toxicology, analytical phytochemistry, um, and that's the, that's the main stuff that I fell in love with. But um, nothing to my knowledge that kind of has that uh, uh, pharmacognosy or, or phytochemical slant on it in Australia. You mentioned earlier um, that you were interested and learned quite a bit about drugs that come from plants. Mm-hmm. Um, can you talk to us about a, a couple of those of those drugs that that we commonly oh. use? Well, maybe well, the top certainly. five or something, just to rattle off yeah, a few. Certainly. Look, there's the one thing I think that's just so fascinating is, um, and just as a bit of a preamble to answer your question, is that there's 250,000 flowering plant species um, that have been identified on the planet, and we've probably only really researched about 10 to 20,000 of those for medicinal virtue. So, just when you start thinking about the sheer magnitude of um, just the flowering plant species, that's not um, gymnast farms, it's not a lot of the, the uh, trees, uh, that's not a lot of the you know, bryophytes or mosses or the fungi of which there are, are so many um, thousands of species that um, you know, it just baffles me um, that we don't spend more time um, investigating this uh, scientifically. But I mean, a lot of the, there are uh, many examples of common medicines that uh, have been uh, derived or then uh, found and then synthesized. Um, so a classic example would be uh, Digitalis purpurea, uh, commonly known as foxgloves, um, which uh, digoxin comes from, uh, cardiac glycoside, uh, useful as a uh, positive inotropic for people in heart failure. Um, then you've got uh, you know, aspirin, which is another classic one. Many people believe that that first came from willow, um, which is uh, Salix alba. Um, but it uh, actually came first from uh, Philopendula Almaria, which at one point was named Philopendula Asperea. I love that um, you remember and, these. <laughs> oh, look, I just, yeah, it's fascinating. And, that, and that's uh, salicylic acid came from, um, from that plant. And then, of course, um, one of the first pharmaceutical medications was then the uh, adding of an acetyl group to that. And we have uh, aspirin as we have it today. Um, and then a drug that's actually quite commonly used now is metformin um, for diabetes, of course, being uh, quite a, a scourge um, in healthcare at the moment. And uh, when we look at metformin, it was actually the, the first principles or the compounds where that was derived from came from Gallagher officinalis or goat's root. Um, so there's, there's, you know, a long history of medicines. Um, you know, morphine example uh, is another one that comes from uh, Papaver somniferum, which is the... Uh, Papaveraceae or poppy family. So th- th- there are many uh, examples of how uh, plant medicines, traditional plant medicines, have been uh, utilised, and then um, some would say perfected or, or, or made um, via synthesis um, into the compounds that we have today. Um, they're known as uh, medicines uh, all around the world. But the reality is, is that the um, traditional herbs that they came from. 
um, were used and have been used for thousands of years for those similar conditions. So again, it kind of harkens back to, um, you know, diabetes is not a, a new disease. It was uh, known to the uh, ancient Chinese. It was known to the ancient Egyptians. They called it thirsting and wasting disease. So, you know, these, our ancient um, ancestors um, knew a lot about, uh, about the plants and, and different medicines that they had available to them. Uh, obviously, nowhere near that we, uh, that we know today with our scientific understanding, but I don't think we give them as much credit as we probably should. I prescribe metformin so many times in the week and I never knew it came from a plant. How's that? Well, it's, um, it, it uh, originated there. It's mm. obviously uh, synthesized uh, in a different way now, but yeah, it's, uh, there's a lot, of little, um, a lot of little stories like that through the literature. And before we we go into medicinal cannabis, you mentioned again mm-hmm. earlier drug herbs and interactions, drug mm-hmm. drug drug and herb interactions. What is the number one drug herb interaction that comes to your mind when when you think of that that you can share with us? Oh, look, it's probably the one that um, has had the most research published on it, and that would be around St John's Wort or Hypericum perforatum. So. St. John's wort, um, as many of your listeners probably know, is, is prescribed for mild to moderate depression. Um, and one of the things that it can do is change the way the cytochrome P450 system works. So it can actually um, speed up um, the uh, removal of, of certain drugs and, and, and then their efficacy within the body. Um, so St. John's has got a, a fairly good... Um, Amount of literature around it for that, um, but of course there are, there are many others, and um, unfortunately there's not a lot of research that gets done on 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 these simply because well there's not much money to be uh, to be made or, or um, you know unless you get grant funding to actually investigate these types of things. But it's not just negative interactions. I think is something that's really important is that yes, whilst there are many that can have uh, negative uh, implications and. Cannabis is certainly one of those as well, whether that's a pharmacodynamic interaction or a pharmacokinetic interaction. Um, the reality is, is that there are uh, interactions that can actually be beneficial. Mm-hmm. So there are some um, herbs out there that can, you know, reduce side effects and things like that from, from different pharmaceuticals. So um, it's a very, uh, new, you know, relatively new and, and growing area of research and one that I think is obviously very important. So with your background in forestry and herbal medicine, um, are you into hiking? Do you like hiking and going for walks in nature? <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah, that's uh, when time allows. If you, um, um, if I ever have time, I usually am always off, um, usually overseas. I've, I've had some wonderful um, hiking trips over in um, the United States, of course. So uh, recently, uh, about four years ago, I was over there hunting for the uh, Pinus longeva, which is the uh, fabled bristlecone pine, which is only resides in the White Mountains of California. Um, very, very ancient tree. Um, nothing medicinal uh, to my knowledge, but uh, just an, an amazing thing to think that some of those trees up there are 3,000 or 4,000 years old, that they were you know, probably young trees when some of the pyramids were being, bought, uh, were being uh, manufactured in Egypt, just uh, astounds me. And um, obviously, New Zealand, not so much of a, a jump. I love getting over there and doing some hikes in um, on the South Island, particularly down near Queenstown. Um, just some beautiful country, um, amazing forests, and, and uh, 
particularly um, I'd love to be able to spend some time with some of the Maori over there to, to learn of their own indigenous medicines, but uh, I'll have to put that on the back burner for now. <laughs> and have you ever seen marijuana or cannabis grow wild anywhere? So when you're on a Oh, yeah. yeah. Where were you when <laughs> you first saw it? Um, that's a good question. I mean, obviously, um, sometimes you can drive past hemp fields and, and hemp is, of course, still cannabis, but we can, we can get to that and, and discuss that a little bit later. But probably the first time I came across a, a wild uh, crop was in, in Northern California uh, on a hike and, and uh, unbeknownst to me, coming across what I suspect was a uh, illicit uh, grow operation up there in the high Sierra Nevadas. So, um, but I mean, it goes... You know, they, they call it weed for a reason because um, it, it, it doesn't need much. It's a, a very, very um, hardy grower um, and, uh, yeah, it doesn't need a lot to survive in, in the wilderness but does need a lot to be grown uh, to high-quality assurance and, and standardised levels of cannabinoids. So um, it's not so easy as a lot of people think of just plonking a couple of seeds in your pot and then being able to to use that as medicine, um, although, of course, it can be therapeutic. Um, when we start talking about medicinal cannabis, typically that's when there's obviously um, a medico um, that's uh, also involved with um, with the care of that patient and, and obviously the growing of that cannabis to incredibly high-quality assurance standards so that um, they're protected from many things that could be uh, adulterating, um, whether that's, you know, uh, growth regulators that are sometimes used in in illicit cannabis uh, production, um, you know, heavy metals and and other and um, microbes and other toxins. So, um, but yeah, I've seen it growing wild uh, all over Australia, um, right throughout the uh, United States. I've even seen it in New Zealand. So, <laughs> it's, uh, it, it is it is a um, ubiquitous. And when, um, say, you and I are walking along and you spot a cannabis plant, can you describe to me? So you pick it up, you, you know, kind of, you kind of, I don't know, take a leaf or something, um, and you start talking to me about the plant and its anatomy. Can you, can you walk that us through that, please? If that's okay. Yeah. Well, look, the the, the cannabis plant. I'd probably just start with a bit of botany first, just to be able to explain. But. Um, Obviously, cannabis comes um, it's, uh, from its own family, the Cannabisi family, and many of you might have uh, used or uh, enjoyed hops, humulus lupulus, which is uh, uh, in beer um, often, and that's uh, another member of this family. But, but typically, the, the classic uh, giveaway of cannabis is the long, um, mostly long palmate, um, so it looks like a, you know, the, your palm. Um, and this serrated um, leaf margin that it has. Um, so it's a, an annual plant typically, which means that it only lasts for the four seasons. It lasts a year, and then it will go to seed uh, and die off. Now, that being said, you can, depending on the cannabis species or subspecies, uh, they are basically uh, light is very important, what's called photoperiodism. So... Cannabis sativa, for example, and, and cannabis indica, um, these can be affected by photoperiodism. They're, they're not much like other plants in that in springtime, when pretty much every other flowering plant that you know um, <clears throat> will go to flower, cannabis actually doesn't. Um, in those you know, 16 to 18 hour days of sunlight, it will be in what's called a vegetative uh, phase. 
and it will just put out lots of leaves uh, to produce carbohydrates from photosynthesis, and it grows very, very uh, quickly. And then in the autumn and uh, winter months, when the natural light dies off uh, to about 10 to 12 hours, that's actually what triggers um, cannabis sativa, cannabis indica to go into um, its flowering stage. And the reason that that's important is because the flowering stage is the flower or actually technically what's called an inflorescence, which is a cluster of little flowers, um, is the main medicinal part. And it's the dried, unfertilized uh, female inflorescence that is largely used um, on which uh, all of the trichomes, uh, which is basically just a fancy name for little hairs or glands um, that are filled with uh, resin, um, which is where most of the cannabinoids and, and other interesting um, phytochemical constituents like the terpenes are actually housed. So there is that... Uh, uh, it's quite herbaceous, uh, which means that it doesn't really have any bark. It's quite green, um, and it has these uh, rather aromatic flowers when it is in flower. Um, and it's actually not the cannabinoids um, themselves um, that are giving off that smell. That's actually the terpenes. So the, the terpenes are kind of like the volatile oils um, that are found within cannabis that give them, give them their unique smells um, and odors. And that's what the dogs are trained to actually pick up on cannabis. So the, the dogs don't pick up on THC or CBD. They're actually trained to detect the terpenes, which in their own right um, have uh, medicinal virtues as well. But, you know, that's not to say that uh, from a medicinal point of view, yes, the um, female inflorescence is what we focus on, largely because that's where the cannabinoids and terpenes are harvested from. But of course, the seeds um, are also used, and that's particularly seen in the hemp industry. Um, so in hemp, uh, hemp, which is largely uh, cannabis sativa, subspecies sativa, are the very, very tall, high-growing, um, quite spindly-leafed uh, cannabis varieties that um, usually have quite low levels of tetrahydrocannabinol or, or delta-9 uh, tetrahydrocannabinol, which is the main intoxicating cannabinoid associated with cannabis, um, but they have much, uh, generally much higher levels of CBD or cannabidiol, um, which we can talk about later if you want, but um, the, a lot of the industry um, uses seed uh, for the oil um, and for protein. Um, the bast fibers in the hemp plant uh, particularly is where we get a lot of fiber from, um, from textiles and uh, paper. They're, they build houses out of it now. They can make different types of plastic out of hemp. It's, a, it's an incredible plant, uh, the cannabis plant, really. Um, but then there are <clears throat> one other species, of course, um, which is important to discuss is cannabis ruderalis, which is um, what they call an auto-flowering variety. So it's genetically, uh, after a certain amount of time, it will uh, launch into uh, its flowering phase and it's not necessarily impacted by light as much. So from a medicinal perspective, when we start thinking about cannabis being produced in Australia and around the world for um, therapeutic use, usually this is done um, under lights uh, and in you know uh, greenhouses where they can control the temperature and pH of the soil and um, amount of water and nutrients that the plant gets because all of those variables, um, including the elevation, wind, um, amount of CO2 in the atmosphere, all of that will change um, the amount of sun it gets. Um, all of that can change the cannabinoid and terpene profile that the plant has. So 
growing it very strictly um, to get reproducible results um, is generally what they do with medicinal cannabis, and that's why it's largely grown uh, in greenhouses um, or indoors under lights. And can you explain to our listeners who are not familiar with lots of the terminology the difference between, so firstly, the um, our endogenous cannabinoid system and the exogenous. Um, I think a lot of people don't realize that we have our own cannabinoid system. Can you talk more on that? Yes, certainly. So um, we wouldn't know anything about what we call the endocannabinoid system if it wasn't for research that was being conducted on the cannabis plant. So um, largely because... Um, we didn't have the phytochemical uh, analytical methods developed to be able to identify the cannabinoids. And that didn't happen um, until Gaoni and Mishulam, I think, first identified uh, THC back in uh, 1964. And so that started the search for how uh, cannabis interacts with our own endogenous uh, system. And then in the uh, late 80s and early 90s, um, we started identifying the specific cannabinoid receptors. Um, so we've got uh, cannabinoid receptors uh, right throughout the body, uh, almost uh, ubiquitously distributed. Um, the cannabinoid 1 receptor, which is largely found in the central nervous system um, and uh, throughout the peripheral nervous system and, and other areas such as uh, the GIT. And then we've got the CB2 receptor, uh, which is largely found in the periphery and uh, around immune cells. Um, and so this then um, obviously uh, led also to the discovery that we produce our own um, endocannabinoids. And so uh, the first one that was discovered uh, was called anandamide, or, um, and uh, that was named after uh, the Sanskrit term ananda, which means bliss. So this mm -hmm. is uh, suggestive, cool. yeah, suggestive of its uh, cannabimimetic activity, so similar to cannabis and, and recent studies have also shown that the runner's high that you get, which uh, I'm sure your medical listeners would uh, and exercise physiologists would know has largely been associated with um, our internal opioids, um, that it's actually the cannabinoids as well. Anandamide um, is uh, present there. Um, but uh, So anandamide was one of the first ones discovered. Uh, Tuarachidinoyl glycerol or 2AG uh, was another one, and, and that's also found uh, uh, right throughout the body. Uh, Palmitol ethanol, amine, OEA. There's a, there's a whole suite of uh, endo endogenous cannabinoids that our bodies produce. Um, but the lion's share of research has really gone so far to uh, anandamide and 2AG, and, and there's many, many others um, that scientists are still trying to elucidate what uh, their role is in the body. How about in the female reproductive tract? Where are those receptors found and which ones? Is it CB1 mainly, CB2, and, and where? Yes, yeah, so there's a variety, um, and it's uh, you know throughout the uh, ovaries, particularly the endometrium, uh, endometrial tissue. Um, that's all been something I'm, I'm having to come to terms with and learn about very quickly because it's the focus of my uh, PhD research. And um, it, it makes a lot of sense that, you know, it's... Um, they're starting to understand that the endocannabinoid system um, interacts quite um, strongly with the HPO, the hypothalamic pituitary ovarian axis. And so um, we're trying to work out, or scientists are trying to work out the roles that the endogenous cannabinoids and cannabinoid uh, receptor expression has in this area. There's only been very limited studies in this area so far, um, but 
Uh, yeah, you're, you're absolutely right. The CB1, CB2 receptors um, are found throughout the, the female reproductive tract, but the CB2 receptors are predominantly found throughout almost all of the immune cells. And that's really quite interesting when, I mean, as I've started to look at the the history of particularly uh, endometriosis, which I find, um, you know, where we have working hypotheses on, on the cause and etiology, but um, very little um, in proof, you know, the retrograde lymphus and, and uh, all of these different theories. Um, the endocannabinoid system, I suspect, might be one of the missing links to actually start uh, fully being able to put the picture together. And I know there's a lot of research centers uh, over overseas internationally that are, that are working on that at the moment. So, but I mean, that's the interesting part is that um, could cannabis not only interact uh, maybe more locally or peripherally with the female reproductive tissues, or is it also working centrally? And I think it's obviously both because we've got research, you know, a lot of research that shows um, how much of an analgesic effect it can have uh, centrally. So, yeah, there's, it's such a fascinating area. Yeah, and whether it, that even fluctuates throughout a woman's menstrual cycle and how that changes, um, mm. that would be interesting. And also fertility, you know, I mean, we, there is a, a connection between autoimmune conditions and infertility and there's lots we don't understand. It would be... That would be another interesting area to study fertility and, and um, cannabinoids. Have they done any work there? So that's interesting. I mean, not to my knowledge. I mean, when I look at, um, when I look at a lot of the, um, and I'm certainly not um, an expert in the area, but looking at things like uh, fertility itself, I, I haven't um, come across a lot to see if cannabis uh, can impact it, although there has been... Um, some studies or a study uh, by the National Academies of Sciences, uh, Medicine and Engineering that uh, looked at the health effects of cannabis and cannabinoids. Um, and that's where they were looking at uh, whether it was safe in, in pregnancy um, or around that periconception. And, and the fact is, is that in short, we don't know. Um, but we do know that things like uh, tetrahydrocannabinol or THC uh, can pass through mum's system. Uh, and then potentially pass on to the developing fetus. Um, we also know that uh, THC uh, can be expressed in breast milk. Um, as with many of the cannabinoids, they're, they're lipophilic uh, or what we, you know, fat-loving. Um, so, but that being said, actual data on the effects of uh, cannabis exposure through um, something like breastfeeding are pretty limited and, and conflicting. So unfortunately, we need to kind of revert to that old chestnut of, of more research needed. But um, we can revert to a lot of the, the findings that were found in that uh, National Academy's uh, paper, uh, which was basically suggesting that um, there were, uh, in pregnancy, there was low-term uh, substantial evidence, I believe, for statistical association um, with cannabis smoking uh, by the mother and lower birth weight of the offspring. Um, there was also some limited evidence found in that National Academy's paper of statistical association between cannabis smoking by the mum and uh, pregnancy complications uh, or admission of the infant to uh, a NICU unit. So, you know, there's, there's insufficient evidence um, looking at things like, you know, later outcomes uh, in the offspring, so things like sudden infant death syndrome or cognition or, or academic performance later in life. 
uh, later substance abuse. So there's a lot of research that needs to be done in that area um, around, uh, you know, that uh, fertility and obviously uh, prenatal, perinatal and, and neonatal exposure. Maybe that's why babies crash out after they've been breastfed. They just fall asleep straight away. It could be that, THC. You never know, huh? Well, if mum was using, I guess. But, you know, there are uh, also uh, endogenous cannabinoids that are available in breast milk. So, um, again, it's, uh, it's an incredible system that we're, we're still only trying to come to uh, terms with understanding. It's incredibly diverse. It's, it's a, uh, uh, one of the most extensive neuromodulatory systems in the body. It, it, it's involved in everything from thermoregulation to inflammation, um, nociception or pain, um, the, the list just goes on and on. It uh, you know, affects cardiovascular function, gastrointestinal function, immune function. Um, it's, it's just the tip of the iceberg. So it's a really exciting time to be involved in cannabis research and particularly research around the endocannabinoid system itself. Again, for our listeners, can you describe exactly what you mean by CBD and THC, their differences, how they work together? Yeah, certainly. So I, I guess that comes back to um, our previous discussion, just looking at, at the plant. And so typically um, when we were talking about cannabis sativa, cannabis indica, even cannabis ruderalis, it's kind of a moot point to talk about specific uh, cultivars as they are um, having certain chemical profiles because there's been so much interbreeding um, or hybridization between these that we really need to look at the chemical makeup um, of the individual plant to know what it might be useful for. And so if we break down the chemistry of the, of the cannabis plant, basically we'll start with the um, phytocannabinoids. So these are just the, the cannabinoids um, that come from cannabis. There are other plants um, that uh, are said to have them, but certainly nowhere near as much or as... Um, in diverse amounts as, as cannabis itself. And, and these are basically derived, the cannabinoids are biosynthesized within the plant um, from terpenes, um, largely things like geronyl pyrophosphate and levitolic acid, uh, which is the phenolic moiety. And these two terpenes and phenols come together um, to create a compound called cannabigerolic acid. And, and this is the precursor compound for most of the cannabinoids in the plant. And just so you guys are aware, I mean, the, there's been over 140 cannabinoids that have been uh, isolated um, from the cannabis plant. There's been over 700 different phytochemicals, but of that, um, about over 140 have been uh, these cannabinoids. And so they're what we call topinophenolic compounds because of that uh, um, biosynthetic derivation that they have, and then from the um, from those parent compounds, they go on to form uh, different uh, compounds such as tetrahydrocannabinolic acid. So that's called THCA, um, and you'll notice um, similar to the parent compound is that it's got this acid attached to it, and this acid is actually a carboxyl group, um, COOH. For those of you that uh, haven't done chemistry in a while, essentially carbon dioxide. Um, and this is attached to the molecule. Um, and it's basically uh, in, the, in the living plant, this is how these 
uh, cannabinoids exist. They exist in an acidic form. And many of them have their own um, medicinal virtues as well. So it's not um, uh, just because that acid's attached doesn't mean that it's, it can't be phytotherapy or it can't be therapeutically beneficial. But most of the cannabinoids that we're interested in um, are decarboxylated. And so using that example of tetrahydrocannabinolic acid or THCA, when that's exposed to heat, such as through vaping or smoking um, or through just uh, natural drying, that will um, that that carbon dioxide molecule, the carboxyl group, starts to vibrate at a really high frequency and it snaps off. And now that tetrahydrocannabinolic acid becomes tetrahydrocannabinol or THC, um, and it's uh, called delta nine THC just because of the position of a double bond, which is getting way too geeky, I'm sure. But it's <laughs> that THC that is actually responsible for a lot of the intoxicating. Um, uh, effects that are associated with, you know, um, illicit cannabis use being stoned. Um, but the the other major one that we're obviously seeing in the literature now of great interest is cannabidiol or CBD. Now, cannab uh, cannabidiol starts very similar to uh, THC in that it was uh, it has a precursor compound which is cannabidiolic acid CBDa, and again once that goes through decarboxylation. Um, that becomes CBD, and and these two compounds, without doubt, um, have the lion's share of the research behind them. So, you know, when people start sitting there, if there's one thing that irritates me um, so very much, is, is hearing people say that, um, you know, CBD is medicinal cannabis, and anything with THC is illicit or recreational cannabis, and nothing could be further from the truth. It's a, it's a very um, sorry to say, but ignorant position to come from is when we look at the pharma pharmacological actions attributed to THC, such as its analgesic activity, its anti-emetic, um, it's been used in um, chemotherapy-induced nausea and vomiting, um, it's an anti-inflammatory, it's a muscle relaxant, it has antioxidant, uh, neuroprotective capacity, um, you know, antipyretic, there's, there's sedative activity, so all of these different actions, um, I think it's fair to say, um, are, are important. So yes, the intoxicating um, nature of cannabis, um, particularly from the THC, uh, might not be what people uh, want and might be concerned about using it medicinally. But I've spoken with many, many doctors that are prescribing medicinal cannabis and obviously you know, thousands of patients over the years and when they get the dosage right, they don't notice that at all. They notice that there is a pain-relieving activity, if that's what they're taking it for, but they don't notice this um, um, stoned or intoxicating effect. So it really does come down to that clinical experience of the physician that's prescribing, getting the right dose, the right cultivar, the right chemical blend, if you will, for the patient and their condition and uh, getting the dose right for them. Um, but, yeah, I mean, um, THC is... Um, used a lot for, um, or THC dominant varieties can be used a lot for things like chronic pain, um, again, chemotherapy induced nausea and vomiting, uh, et cetera. Whereas things like cannabid, uh, or, or the uh, constituent cannabidiol, many of your listeners probably are aware of its use as an anticonvulsant. Um, and, and the interesting thing is that this is, this is not new information. And God, I, I could talk to you forever about the history of, of cannabis going back, but, um, you know, this was this has been known for quite some time um, that uh, cannabis had anticonvulsant properties, and 
Uh, one of those was actually a, a medical doctor, uh, Dr. O'Shaughnessy, um, who spent time in the British East India Company over in uh, India, and he studied the effects of cannabis on on uh, dogs and, and did all sorts of different uh, little trials over there. But he basically was the first to bring the knowledge to, to Western science um, back in the 1800s um, about the use of, of cannabis for uh, particularly the Indian hemp, as he called it, which was likely quite rich in CBD um, for uh, epilepsy. And so there's been studies now published in the New England Journal of Medicine, uh, studies done here in Australia looking at CBD for intractable epilepsy and, and that uh, um, there, there is benefit. Um, you know, 30% of, of uh, cases responded very well to it. So, but it's, that's not all. I mean, it, uh, it uh, has an analgesic effect of it in its own right. It's also a very potent uh, antioxidant and anti-inflammatory, um, has anti-nauseant again and anti-emetic effects. Uh, interestingly, um, has anxiolytic activity. Um, so being able to reduce anxiety, it also binds to the 5-HT1A receptor, which would be suggestive of antidepressant activity, um, and so is also neuroprotective. And so I'm sure, you know, your listeners have just sat there and said, well, hang on, Justin, there's quite a lot of similarity across some of those pharmacological actions between THC and CBD, and, and you're absolutely right. So this is why typically we see in Australia and New Zealand and uh, particularly in uh, other uh, jurisdictions like Canada and North America, that um, a lot of the medicinal products, particularly the oils that uh, people use, will generally have a, a balanced ratio or one-to-one -one ratio of THC to CBD. Now, um, and they can be used across a variety of different conditions. Um, so it's not just, you know, some of the evidence that's out there now is... Um, um, again, going back to that National Academies of Sciences, uh, medicine and engineering report was, you know, uh, there's conclusive and substantial evidence that cannabis or cannabinoids can be useful for the treatment of chronic pain in adults, uh, as an anti-emetic in chemotherapy induced nausea and vomiting, improving the spasticity of multiple sclerosis. Um, moderate levels of evidence generally coming out about, uh, conditions like fibromyalgia being able to help people with sleep disturbance if they have sleep apnea, um, and then lower levels of evidence, but still evidence nonetheless that it can improve appetite, particularly um, in people that are suffering from cachexia with, say, HIV or AIDS. Um, again, uh, improving symptoms of things like anxiety uh, and Tourette syndrome, So, um, and even emerging evidence uh, about its benefit for post-traumatic stress disorder. So when you start thinking about one plant being able to uh, work across so many different conditions um, that are each unique and quite different, um, it really does go to show how that endocannabinoid system uh, may be involved in our understanding of um, so many different you know, conditions that we, we don't understand the etiology for. I mean, you, you raised earlier, uh, Natasha, the um, autoimmune conditions, and I think we're what? There's over 60 autoimmune conditions, and, and most of them we have no idea. Uh, what causes, you know, what the etiology and, and, and uh, pathogenesis is of these conditions because they are quite rare. And this is where I'm so hopeful that um, more investigation into the endocannabinoid system might be able to pro provide some of those details. Absolutely. And aren't most autoimmune, or most autoimmune conditions more common in women, I, I thought. Um, so, yeah, I'd love to see more research in that area, definitely.
Um, mm. Recently, I had a, a mother of a young girl reach out to me on social media. Uh, mm-hmm. She uh, was quite desperate, daughter, still at high school, severe pelvic pain, chronic pelvic pain, secondary to endometriosis. Mum said, you know, is there anything you can do to help her? And I said, you know, what, what, what's already happening? And she said that, you know, she's already seeing a couple of very good doctors, gynecologists. And I really thought, I, I don't have that much more to offer than, than these two doctors she's already seeing. And I asked mm-hmm. her, have you looked into CBD, um, medicinal cannabis? And, and she said, yes, we have. Um, and they are managed to access some through Cannabis Doctors Australia in Queensland through telehealth. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and apparently her daughter's getting some good outcomes in that she's better able to sleep, she's got less nausea, it's improved her pain. Mm-hmm. And that uh, she informed me that it was done through an application process through the, this Cannabis Doctors Australia. So it obviously mm-hmm. made the job easier for the doctor. Um, mm-hmm. Can you talk to us more about how we do this as doctors. So as a gynecologist, how mm-hmm. can I best do this for my patient? So I've got a patient who comes in, and these are patients I see commonly, who've kind of reached the end of their tether. They yeah. are desperate, and they're probably seeing me as a third or fourth doctor even. Um, how can I move on to medicinal cannabis? Well, I think we, we can break that down into the regulations, and we break break that down into education. Um so I think as a doctor, you'd probably agree with me um, by saying that you learnt very little about uh, cannabis and its therapeutic application when you studied. I would uh, say I'm zero, guessing. zero. <laughs> okay, <laughs> and 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 maybe even um, all you learnt was actually the the negative side effects associated with illicit use. So there's a, there's already a little bit of bias in, mm, in the undergraduate uh, mm-hmm. education um, of of doctors in Australia. Um, and to date, uh, to my knowledge, there are very few curriculums uh, in medicine or any other healthcare um, uh, curriculums, for that matter, that actually investigate uh, or understand the endocannabinoid system. So I think education is one of those areas, um, and we can talk about that later if you wish, but um, that obviously the doctor needs to uh, learn about, um, not only the endocannabinoid system and how it works within the body, but how cannabis um, and the different uh, cannabinoids and terpenes, etc., interact with that system. So that would be the first step in educating uh, the doctor so that they feel comfortable. And then the second is actually the regulatory. Um, and that's, uh, as you said, it's not entirely um, easy to be able to prescribe medicinal cannabis in Australia. It's a little bit involved. So first of all, um, something like CBD, which you mentioned, cannabidiol, is actually Schedule 4. Uh, in Australia, so that's uh, prescription only. Um, uh, and then other cannabinoids like THC um, or any of the others for that matter are actually Schedule 8 uh, controlled drugs. So the way that the um, a medical practitioner can prescribe medicinal cannabis in Australia is through a, a majorly through a scheme called the Special Access Scheme Category B. So this is largely for unapproved medicines um, and it requires, it's all online now, which is fantastic. Um, and the, the medico basically just needs to uh, go to the TGA website. Um, there's a, a whole um, couple of pages actually on, on how to prescribe, how to go through the special access scheme category B for your patient. Um, and, and you fill in basically the, your patient details, the conditions that they have, 
what kind of treatment that they've had previously and why they're non you know why they why you would be um, wanting to use cannabis so this would obviously be largely for uh, people that have maybe been non-responsive to standard treatment or maybe side effects of standard treatment were too bad um, and then you would recommend a product that they use and so that then goes um, uh, federally uh, to the TGA um, and it also needs to be approved from the uh, state departments and, and that's different depending on the state and territory that you're working in. They all have different requirements, but typically it's very, very quick. Um, I know of, of doctors that have, uh, it was quite painstaking back when it first started, but I now know of some doctors uh, that are getting uh, clearances back um, within, uh, definitely within 24 hours, sometimes even within five hours, um, and it's all been approved, and then they just need to organize to have that uh, product sent to a pharmacist for the patient to pick up. Now that's one way of going through it. That's called the special access scheme category B. And then and then there's another called the authorized prescriber scheme. So that's where um, um, you actually focus or the practitioner would only focus on say a specific uh, clinical indication that they would be prescribing medicinal cannabis for. Um, so for example, you as a, a you know, a, a gynecologist, you might just be looking at endometriosis. Um, but the difference is, is that you actually need to get uh, endorsement by an ethics committee, um, whether that's a, you know, a, an ethics committee at a university or maybe one of the royal colleges. Um, and then you submit to have the authorized prescriber status um, reviewed. And if they grant it to you, then it's actually a lot easier and faster for you to be able to prescribe to your patients and you don't actually need to go through every single time um, a special access scheme category B application. So um, again, all of that information is actually found on the PGA websites. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I'm at the moment, as, as you were saying, it's uh, uh, prescription only, uh, particularly um, CBD and, and your um, more intoxicating THC, et cetera. But um, I, I expect that things are probably going to change um, in the future, when uh, particularly around CBD, um, I know that in other countries, uh, the United Kingdom, Canada, United States, uh, CBD is much easier to get your hands on where it's actually over the counter. Um, I suspect that will probably be on the cards in the future in Australia. Um, however, I don't know uh, what that might look like. But yeah, uh, up at the moment, it's only something that can be prescribed uh, by medical practitioners. And so that's one of the big challenges is that a, a recent Senate inquiry um, that was held uh, earlier this year, uh, which was the uh, Community Affairs Reference Committee that was investigating uh, barriers to cannabis access in Australia um, for medicinal purposes. And they actually found that, um, again, it was the education of uh, medical practitioners because they are the gatekeepers for the system that, that could be seen as being um, one of the bottlenecks for why um, so few people are actually utilizing medicinal cannabis in Australia. So education is absolutely critical um, of, um, you know, not just doctors, of course, but of uh, all healthcare professionals that are going to be coming into contact with people that might be using medicinal cannabis. So uh, nurses, of course, and uh, nurse practitioners and others. So, um, yeah, it's a, it's a growing need, but education, absolutely. There's been a couple of courses that have been run so far in Australia um, that were actually certified by or accredited by the uh, Royal Australian College of General Practitioners. I was very lucky enough to be able to 
uh, speak at, uh, at two of those, um, but we need a lot more. Um, and I also think that uh, for any of those uh, medicos that are, that are listening that also have academic positions, it really is important that uh, this starts to enter into under, undergraduate education in the curriculum as well. I mean, you're absolutely right about the bias, um, and I think that's why most doctors are, no, I, I won't look into that. What do you mean? You know, there's this such negativity around cannabis when there really mm. shouldn't be. And you're right, it's because of ignorance, which really I don't think is uh, is right of us doctors to to carry on that way um, and, and to be open to being educated. So when is one of those next courses coming up? That's a really good question. I'm I'm uh, I'm not entirely sure at the moment, but I'm I'm hunting around um, to see. I know that there's a couple that are in uh, development at the moment. I think there's a couple of online courses. Uh, if you type in medicinal cannabis education Australia, um, there there'll probably be a few that pop up that are online. But um, again, um, the quality of uh, of some of them I'm not entirely sure about because I've I've not been involved with them, but. You know, you are right. There is a there is a, a bias and a stigma that's still attached to cannabis, um, um, and it's just such a sad thing. Because I mean, if you if you were a lover of history like I am, you'd know that cannabis has been used as a a medicine for you know, dating back probably uh, many scholars believe ten thousand years. I mean, the the first documented use of cannabis um, was actually in in China, um, where it was used for appetite stimulation, um, for its anti-senility effects, and that it was also used for um, disorders of the female reproductive tract. So, I mean, that, that's not only, you know, that was back in China 2,700 uh, years uh, before the Common Era. Um, that was uh, in the Shenlong Peng Saoqing. I apologize profusely to uh, native Chinese speakers for my butchering of that. <laughs> but, um, you know, that might well be not only the first documented case of cannabis uh, being used for the, you know, causing the munchies, um, but it certainly is is one of those early ones that's been of interest to me because with, with my research focusing on medicinal cannabis use in conditions like uh, endometriosis, um, you know, when people sit there and say, oh, wow, this is really cutting-edge science, and it's like, well, it's actually not. <laughs> um, and, and that's the thing that I, I just get so frustrated with is that um, a lot of our ancestors' knowledge, um, particularly around this plant, is is, is vast and extensive. Um, so not just are we talking about China, um, we're talking about Egypt. Um, it was uh, cannabis was referred to as Shemshemet. It was written about in the pyramid text, uh, you know, 2350 BCE. Um, it's been documented in Assyria, where it was called Azalu. Um, it was uh, documented there uh, as a drug for, uh, drug for sorrow. Um, so that was actually probably the first documented use of it uh, uh, being used for depression. Um, it's being used in, in the Atharva Veda uh, in, of uh, ancient India, where it was uh, called Banga, and it was one of five herbs that was used to release patients from anxiety. Um, you know, all the way back through to uh, the Hebrew uh, tradition, it, it was spoken of as Kanabosem. Um, it's being used in Persia, um, you know, 600 BC, where it was uh, written about in the Zoroastrian text. Um, Greece, of course, looking at people like Padanius Dioscorides, who was a physician with the, the Roman legions. He wrote of it being very useful um, for use uh, in edema and inflammation. And, um, you know, who's another great one I'm just trying to think of? Um, oh, 
ships are out coming back, coming back. Galen. <laughs> um, yeah, God, mm-hmm. I almost forgot about Galen. I mean, he wrote of it um, being used for, you know, as a narcotic and uh, use in earache and things. And, I mean, the ancient uh, Romans even baked it into desserts and mm-hmm. ate it at parties for recreational purposes. I mean, they're pretty civilized people. But see, yeah, I mean, that, that tradition of use that goes all the way back, and particularly Middle East, um, the Middle East and, and uh, Arabic physicians, you know, in the 700s, like uh, Gita, they wrote about it extensively. Um, and then that comes all the way through to, to, you know, what we would call, I guess, a little bit more modern medicine. And that's where, you know, William O'Shaughnessy, as I spoke to you about, was uh, one of the first doctors that uh, wrote about it in the Provincial Medical Journal in 1839 about its use for um, ganja or the Indian hemp um, and the use of its preparations but I just find it fascinating because you know modern cannabis use let's look at you know just from the 1800s it was used and, and this was written about in 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 pretty prestigious journals so I'm not um, when I talk about these types of things it's not like this is you know just case reports this was written about in the British Medical Journal the Lancet um, Journal of the American Medical Association where cannabis was used for, again, uh, anxiety, mental depression with insomnia. Um, they even showed all the way back in 1887 that it had advantages over opiates in pain management. It was used for migraine, uh, dysmenorrhea, childhood convulsions. Um, so all of this um, you know, new science that we're getting and saying, oh, wow, cutting-edge science shows that um, uh, CBD is beneficial in um, and, and has benefit for intractable epilepsy. It's like, well... We have the confirmation of it, but it's been known for quite some time. It's uh, you know, also now being studied in, in, in migraine and headache and, and all these types of things. And, and this is all really within the last 150, 200 years that a lot of people don't realize that um, it was a basic uh, pharmaceutical staple um, of the medical profession. And, and, and it wasn't until when it was looking to be um, banned in the 1930s that the president of the American Medical Association uh, at the time kicked up a big stink and said that um, there's no way that, uh, you know, it's a very, very important medicine um, and uh, um, it, shouldn't be, um, it shouldn't be taken away. But um, it happened anyway. We'll, we'll come back to that point, actually. Um... Speaking of publications, you recently published uh, in a journal recently uh, an article titled Cannabis Use, a Self-Management Strategy Among Australian Women with Endometriosis Results from a National Online Survey. Can mm-hmm. you discuss that paper with us? Certainly. So that's, um, that was a paper um, that came about on the back of work that uh, – my uh, PhD supervisor and Supreme Overlord, uh, Dr. Mike Armour, um, actually looked at where we looked at different um, self-management strategies that women were using to manage their endometriosis, and, and cannabis was was one of those. And so the paper that you just mentioned, um, we published uh, in the Journal of Obstetrics, uh, Gynecology Canada, and that's where we actually looked at the subset data um, that was just specific uh, to cannabis. And so the findings that we basically had were that uh, from that original survey, around one in 10 women um, were utilizing cannabis, likely from illicit sources, because at the time the survey was run, um, there were no 
uh, documented cases of cannabis being approved for endometriosis through the special access scheme or any of those systems. Um, and so that, uh, and that it was the highest ranked um, self-management strategy of all of those that were um, investigated for pain. So about 7.6 out of 10 on the, uh, for, for being affected for pain. Um, it was also shown to be uh, quite beneficial for uh, other symptoms, so particularly uh, nausea and vomiting, gastrointestinal upset, uh, probably what we assume to be uh, endo-belly, um, as, as uh, many women that have the condition would know. Um, anxiety, depression were also found to have uh, significant improvements. And the, the highest improvement was actually sleep. Um, and whether that is because of cannabis not only having hypnotic and sedative qualities, but, but also getting the pain under control and therefore making sleep easier, we don't know. Um, we, we haven't been able to tease that apart, of course, just because of its, uh, the, the nature of the survey. But um, the other really interesting finding that we found was that 56% of the women in the cannabis-using cohort um, were able to reduce their pharmaceutical medication usage by over 50% or more, um, which is pretty um, significant. And so, you know, this survey then has um, led to uh, us doing uh, or putting together um, other focus groups. Um, that's actually going to be, uh, as I said previously, my PhD research is looking at um, designing a, a randomized controlled trial uh, investigating medicinal cannabis for the uh, investigating for the safety, tolerability, and effectiveness um, in endometriosis, particularly pain and other associated symptoms. So, looking at uh, doing uh, more survey work with uh, women that are using it uh, overseas in jurisdictions where uh, it's easier to access and there's likely more data points for for access for us. Um, also, doing some more focus group work on women um, that might be interested in in um, learning more about medicinal cannabis uh, for endometriosis and how that can then be used in co-design for a randomized controlled trial. But one of the others that we've done uh, recently, which again was led by uh, Dr. Mike Armour, um, who's the senior research fellow at, at Nickham um, where I work, um, was we did focus groups um, that were looking at uh, just qualitative investigation on cannabis for primary dysmenorrhea, um, so for period pain. Um, so we basically asked women about their experiences using cannabis, again, likely illicitly for period pain, um, and their thoughts on things like, you know, potential challenges or barriers to use, because that's another area that we'd, uh, would like to, uh, potentially look at, uh, putting a clinical trial together. So the only problem with that one is that we're still in write up, so I can't actually share anything just yet, but mm. suffice to say, yeah, there's, 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 there's a sound medical and scientific rationale for why cannabis might be useful for period pain. Um, but again, I think this will probably be specific to the type of uh, cultivar of cannabis or the, the uh, phytochemical compounds that are, that are found in the particular type of cannabis, the dosage form that's being used, and obviously also the dose. So we're hoping to conduct, uh, again, um, some clinical research specific on this in the future. Um, so certainly watch this space, but I'll make sure to send uh, the final paper, uh, final paper through once it's uh, gone through the uh, review and, and publication process. But I'm sure you could probably twist Mike's arm uh, to come and share the findings uh, on your podcast in the not-too-distant future. Absolutely. I'm definitely inviting you on a second time. Um, 
in your paper, I um mm-hmm. I had a question about method of use. So are most are most women smoking the marijuana? How as in you know just like a cigarette? How are they using it? Yeah, you're absolutely right. So um, and this is something that we're seeing um, in other areas uh, of research that we're finding as well is that the majority of women um, for our survey did use cannabis illicitly. Um, and they used it uh, via smoked or vaporized was was definitely the predominant dosage form that they used. Now, the thing that we then had the question is, is are they using that because they're getting it from, you know, illicit supplier? Um, the There's not a great deal of uh, sophistication, for example, with different dosage forms from um, illicit supply chains, I'm guessing. Maybe for some there are, but certainly for the majority, maybe not. So that's what was driving them to use um, a smoked or vaporized uh, delivery method. But then the, the fact is, too, is that uh, particularly um, important when we discuss the cannabinoids, I've mentioned previously that they're quite lipophilic, um, but they can cross the blood-brain barrier, and they cross the blood-brain barrier quite quickly when in an inhaled form. So I suspect, as, as many others do too, that women are actually favoring the, uh, the inhaled route um, for cannabis because it has such a fast onset of action. So you, you're talking about pain relief generally within five to 10 minutes. Now, if you start looking at oral medicinal cannabis dosage forms, such as oils or capsules, um, these can have a, a varied onset of effect uh, duration because everyone's um, liver and cytochrome P450 system works a little bit differently. So anywhere between 30 minutes to two hours before that will uh, come into full effect. Now, the other interesting thing too is that when cannabis is inhaled, it does have that fast onset of action, but it only lasts for a certain period of time, anywhere between two to four hours, um, and then it starts to wear off. Whereas if you ingest again, through oral oils or capsules, it will have a much longer duration of effect, anywhere between six to eight hours. So there's a, there's a space, I think, for both, um, with um, particularly around endometriosis, um, maybe using inhaled forms for breakthrough pain um, and relying on oral uh, forms for um, the majority of, of the pain relief or symptomatic relief that women are, are looking at. But, you know, obviously there's risk um, smoking cannabis, of course. You combust um, other materials that can be damaging to the lungs. Um, and that's not something that, of course, a lot of doctors would feel comfortable with. And I completely understand that. Um, vaporizing, on the other hand, generally just combusts the cannabinoids and terpenes at, at lower, you know, uh, pre-ignition points. So there's no actual combustion. Um, and it releases it as a vapor. Um, again, very fast onset of action, which is quite useful, but vaporizers themselves um, a little bit more expensive to come by. And, and uh, um, yeah, it, it's such an interesting thing, but uh, you're absolutely right. To answer your question, that is uh, true. And we've, we've seen that in other areas as well, is that women tend to favor that fast um, or that uh, inhaled uh, form. And, and I suspect it's because of the fast onset of action. Um, but yeah, we need to do more research to to find out more. Yeah, I've got a few books on uh, medicinal cannabis, and a few of them share lots of recipes um, that people can make up in their kitchens. And mm-hmm. some of them are actually <laughs> really nice recipes. And as I was looking through some of these, I thought, oh, 
maybe, you know, the, the edibles uh, are maybe better to take in the evenings um, as that way they'll be able to get some relief as they sleep because a lot of women, as you know, wake up in the middle of the night with bad period pain. Mm-hmm. So maybe the edibles would be better in the evenings and then the inhalables maybe during the day when they need that breakthrough, as you said. Mm. Um, on the topic of impairment, though, I had a, a uh, inquiry um, through Facebook when I put up that I was chatting to you today. Uh, mm-hmm. Beck Molly Brett said, the medicinal prescribed cannabis is so expensive and driving laws are prohibitive. Could mm-hmm. you ask if research is underway looking at impairment? Yes, there is. Now, uh, uh, she raised, uh, the question is a very important one, and this was actually something, again, that was raised at that Senate inquiry earlier this year um, as you know, a, a barrier to medicinal cannabis access is that um, the drug driving laws in Australia have not changed. And so, theoretically, if, you, uh, if, a, if a woman, say, with endometriosis went to see you you prescribe medicinal cannabis completely legally. It was, you know, went through the TGA, the SASCAT B was approved, that patient is now a legally prescribed patient. They start taking the oil that you prescribed, um, they're getting benefits. But the reality is, is that if they got pulled over um, or, you know, um, subject to a, a mobile drug test, that they could still potentially lose their license because there has been no provision made within the drug driving uh, regulations for medicinally prescribed cannabis. Um, and as I've previously said, the cannabis is quite lipophilic, so it stays in the tissues for quite some time. So you could have uh, taken your dose um, the night before. It provided you, as you rightly say, with you know eight, eight hours of, of pain-free sleep you wake up in the morning, you don't feel impaired at all, um, you get behind the wheel of your car, you start driving, and then you got tested, you would technically be um, potentially prosecuted for that, even though you're not impaired. And so the, one of the great challenges then with being able to detect impairment um, is it's not so simple as, as like that for alcohol. So with alcohol, um, it's a volatile substance. It's given off in the breath. And so they've been able to devise the testing, which is really quite specific around the percentage, if you will, of, of blood alcohol concentration through expired air. It's not so easy to do that with cannabis because, again, it's, it's quite fat-soluble. So if you were a regular user of cannabis um, you know, for medicinal purposes or even uh, social or recreational purposes, um, and you you know, took it every day, um, it could take, in some cases, days to weeks to actually fully clear out of your system if you stopped using it just because it actually um, stays in those tissues. So that's a really important point. It's something that the um, federal government, uh, through that inquiry um, and through many other academics, of course, have raised this as an issue um, that patients are very concerned about because it is a barrier to patient access is that Patients want the ability to be able to drive, um, and if they're taking a medication responsibly under the care of a doctor, um, then I don't see a problem with that. I think they need to, obviously, there are uh, research groups around the world that are trying to work out a, a better quantitative test, um, you know, because the test at the moment just detects for its presence. It doesn't detect for impairment. So, we, you know, that needs to be developed so that... Um, um, there can be some measure of uh, better understanding. 
because uh, you know make no mistake of course that um driving under the influence of of uh cannabis whether it's medicinal or illicit if you feel that it, it, it can impair and there are studies that show that it can impair people's uh judgment and and ability to brake and drive so that's that's something that we do need to be cautious about but something that's uh used therapeutically you know under medical guidance it's not fair that uh, patients have the ability to be prosecuted for a, a prescribed drug and the example i usually give is opioids um and as i'm sure you're aware you can prescribe drugs such as you know benzos uh, the benzodiazepine class and 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 opioids and there's nothing actually uh, you know the mobile drug tests don't detect for that um it's just basically said on the on the label and obviously i'm hoping the the medical practitioner prescribing it would be saying you know now if you've taken this you don't want to be driving heavy machinery or operating anything like that and and that's complete common sense um but the problem i guess is that you know that does happen um and i don't see why cannabis can't be treated any differently or should be treated any differently to to the opioids or benzos where it's just um yes as long as it's under medical guidance and hopefully they're getting that dose titrated and taking some personal responsibility to not drive while impaired um or under the influence of it then i think that that's um for the moment the best that we can hope for um i've read that people can actually make lotions potions creams from cbd oil or from um you know the actual plant mm-hmm. if i was to apply that to my skin uh would the same uh, apply if i was pulled up and had a random um, drug test could they see that in my system and how long does it last when it's applied topically versus ingested or inhaled that's a really good question and and the fact is i don't know i do know that there is um investigation into some transdermal delivery um and i guess it's just dependent uh, you know we we say that the cannabinoids are highly lipophilic but that doesn't necessarily translate to you know how much of that would translate to you making a cream and how much actual cannabinoids usable cannabinoids could get through into the bloodstream and i suspect that there'd be need to be some type of transdermal carrier um or maybe even looking at things like um um different delivery systems like azonal or others um so yeah i i you know even maybe uh, um uh ethanol and and uh, lysozones i'm not sure but um the I, i i suspect that that is the case um but i doubt it would be anywhere near as much um in in that kind of crude cream format or, or ointment uh, as you would see from uh inhaled or oral use yeah because i was also reading of a, a product available in the states a vaginal lubricant that has cbd oil in it marketed specifically for vaginismus or pain with sex and i th- i read it and i thought oh that's amazing if 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 that actually works because there are so many women who have pain with intercourse mm. um do you know anything about lubrication and cbd oil well look just from a lubrication point of view there's probably a lot of cheaper things that you could use and that kind of um um goes back to that that question that your um facebook uh that came through on facebook that the, the cost is incredibly prohibitive at the moment for for many people which is why we're still seeing uh large amounts of illicit cannabis uh being used for therapeutic purposes particularly in australia and new zealand to our understanding from from the research we've done um anywhere between 250 to 350 dollars a month for a medicinal cannabis product is i i think you would agree quite expensive so 
Um, again, that's something that's been raised to the Senate inquiry, and we're hoping that 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 cost can come down. But you know, if it's purely looking at a, a lubric, you know, from a lubricant point of view, there's probably many cheaper oils or or other um, gels, etc., that you could use. Um, with vaginismus, I mean, it's 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 an interesting um, topic, um, and and the main reason being around that is that there's there's a bit of a scientific rationale, I think, for why um, it could be beneficial. Um, you know, again, that kind of um, THC having a relaxing uh, or sedative property. Um, you probably use more centrally than locally, as you've been talking about with a with a pessary or something along those lines, um, as being able to relax some of those uh, muscles and also relax the anxiety around sex as well, because it can make you relax because you're you know, something that's always been painful. Um, that could that could be. Oh, geez, look at that. The um, that's what happens when you have Siri activated. Um, <laughs> anyway, um, getting back to that, yeah. So centrally, yes, um, THC could have that relaxing and sedative property. CBD, I'm very interested uh, to learn about um, the local effects that CBD could have in a pessary, um, or maybe as you know, I don't know. Uh, um, some type of other local delivery into um, the vaginal canal. Um, but the, the fact is, is that I haven't seen any research at the moment that is um, specific to that topic or specific to vaginismus. I suspect, again, uh, CBD having an uh, anti-inflammatory activity that could be uh, quite beneficial. Um, but again, until we see the science, um, I'm a little bit, uh, you know, I'm, I'm a lot more, um, encouraging of using dosage forms that we know a lot more about, such as you know the uh, oral oral method. Um, even though that is working more centrally and systemically, um, I'd really I'm still the jury's out for me on on um, whether local use of of CBD oils or CBD pessaries. Um, the research just needs to be done. Uh, in terms of cost and range of cost, uh, CBD mm -hmm. oil or or any medicinal cannabis uh, medication, what are we looking at in terms of cost to the patient? So again, whether it's a CBD predominant product, um, which still has, in most cases, minute amounts of THC in it, so less than one milligram, but still present. Um, and then, you know, more balanced uh, products that are, say, one-to-one -one THC to CBD, um, you're still looking at about the same price. And depending on the condition that's being treated um, is really where that uh, comes into play. So if you're looking at something such as, you know, chronic pain in adults or um, spasticity and multiple sclerosis and, and many of these other uh, conditions that are focused around chronic pain, Typically, you're looking at anywhere between 250 to 350 Australian dollars per month, and that's based on, um, you know, the, the the standard doses that a that a medical practitioner would prescribe. Now, where that changes, of course, is when we start seeing other conditions like intractable epilepsy. So, intractable epilepsy, um, which relies predominantly on CBD, um, very little THC um, has been used or, or studied um, in that intractable epilepsy cohort, but you can, you know, some of those kids are taking anywhere between 100 um, and more milligrams of CBD per day. Um, and so you're actually looking, and I spoke to um, 
uh, various patient advocates, you know, such as uh, Epilepsy Action Australia and, and others that say that they have some patients that have had to move overseas to Canada or the United States to actually get treatment with uh, medicinal cannabis uh, purely because they couldn't afford it uh, over here because the, the costs could range anywhere between 16000 to $50,000 a year uh, to be able to provide that amount of CBD uh, to one of those uh, uh, those children with, say, Dravet syndrome or uh, Lennox-Gastort. So it really is um, expensive. Um, and what we expect to see, um, or what I expect to see, is that as more Australian manufacturers, so cultivators and manufacturers of medicinal cannabis products come online, we only have, um, I think, two at the moment that are really doing uh, anything productive, um, most of the rest of the products are all imported from Canada or, or other overseas countries. So once we start getting more Australian companies online, um, they'll be able to start hopefully scaling up uh, magnitudes of, you know, orders of magnitude, um, larger uh, pr pr production costs, and that should be able to bring down the finished product cost. And I'm hoping that we'll start seeing that within the next uh, 12 to 18 months. So it sounds like more doctors need to get more open-minded, educate themselves, and then perhaps look into prescribing this for their patients to then maybe increase the demand so that then maybe we can get more of this grown in Australia, would you say? I think that's, I think that's um, a, a very useful observation, yeah. I think that, um, again, with doctors being the, the main gatekeepers to the medicinal cannabis system in Australia, that education um, definitely is, is, is one of those core barriers to, to patient access. Um, a lot of the people that listen to this podcast are book lovers like myself. Uh, mm -hmm. Do you have any good books you could uh, recommend that we read about any, you know, even herbal biology or, you know, medicinal cannabis specifically, any any good books that stick out in your mind? Certainly, yeah. Look, um, the one study that I would probably refer most of your more scientifically um, geared readers and, and, and medical practitioners uh, to would be the National Academy uh, of Science and Engineering and Medicine, um, they published this um, consensus study report called The Health Effects of Cannabis and Cannabinoids, and that was done in January 2017. So if you actually just type in National Academies of Science, um, Health Effects of Cannabis, um, it'll actually allow take you to the, the um, National Academy of Sciences, Engineering, Medicine website, and you can download that for free. And it's a, it's a rather lengthy document, I must admit. It's, uh, I think, uh, well over 350 pages, but it goes into a great deal of detail for those uh, particularly wanting to see what the current science uh, around medicinal cannabis is. Another one, particularly um, for those of you listeners that are maybe a little bit confused as to how cannabis has been used as a medicine for thousands upon thousands of years, and then suddenly in 1937 it just wasn't, um, there's an excellent book on um, how cannabis came to be made illegal, uh, essentially, and it's called Chasing the Scream uh, by Johan Hari. Um, and he really does um, go in to explain um, the, the background, did all the research, and, and does so in a much more eloquent way than, than I could ever explain. Um, but it really does go to show, um, and again, just a personal opinion, that the the war on drugs um, seems to have been a bit of a dismal failure, um, particularly when you actually think that um, 
uh, Australia and New Zealand are actually still the biggest users of cannabis per capita in the world. Um, so, um, and, and whether that is, you know, purely for recreational purposes um, or therapeutic purposes, we have evidence um, that was done actually at uh, Sydney University. Um, the Lambert Initiative over there did a study um, looking at uh, cannabis uh, use for therapeutic purposes. Um, so not necessarily medicinal cannabis or high-quality assured uh, cannabis prescribed by a doctor, but people that were using cannabis for different uh, medical conditions. And that's a really interesting paper. Again, that's open access. Um, it's called the CAM 16, and I think they've also got the CAMS 18 survey out, and I believe they're both open access. So, so again, those scientific readers that want to uh, learn a bit more, that could be really useful. But, yeah, Chasing the Screen uh, by Johan Hari is an excellent book just uh, talking about how we kind of got here with cannabis being so uh, vilified and, and uh, you know, the victim of uh, what essentially was a bit of a propaganda campaign. Um, and one thing that I will point out too, which is a completely free resource, is that um, United in Compassion um, is probably Australia's leading uh, patient advocacy uh, and medicinal cannabis um, registered charity in Australia. Um, it's headed up by Lucy Haslam. Um, Lucy Haslam and her son Dan were, uh, you know, responsible largely for um, the medicinal cannabis movement in Australia and where we are today. Um, and that website um, actually has, um, you know, many, many hours because um, um, UIC has had uh, international symposiums on medicinal cannabis where they've brought out the uh, leading international researchers and clinicians from around the world to actually speak at these symposiums and all of them have been recorded um, and the, the notes as well have been saved. So all you need to do is go onto the United in Compassion website um, and I think you just uh, log in some uh, details, um, you know, just your uh, uh, name and, and email address, and then you get access to uh, all of these, um, uh, you know, I think it's over 70 hours of videos um, that's from the leading experts from around the world. So great, great free resource that um, any of you, and, and, and particularly across so many diverse topics. So uh, I, I've given a talk on there about uh, cannabis phytochemistry and and uh, history of use and, you know, the phytocannabinoids and all that kind of stuff. And uh, many others talk about specific uh, use for different clinical indications, whether it's epilepsy or uh, chronic pain, etc. So um, definitely something that I'd, uh, I'd uh, have a look at. But uh, as a, uh, just for transparency, I should, should state that I am on the Scientific Advisory Board for United in Compassion. Um, I've been working with them since uh, 2015. Um, but it's been in a completely pro bono um, capacity. So I don't make any money from the, uh, you know, talks that I've done with them or for them um, over, over the years. Yeah, I've looked at their guide for Australian patients, which is, which is really good. Yeah, I'd, I'd definitely recommend that resource. And thank you for sharing those other resources. The Chasing the Scream, is that right? Not the screen, but Ch the screen. Yeah, Ch Chasing the Scream. The screen. As in, uh, yeah. Yep. Yeah, I'd like to know more about uh, why cannabis became so controversial, and I'm so glad that it's it's now becoming more acceptable and accepted. But yeah, I think we have a fair way to go in terms of um, the medical side of things. So doctors, um, and it, I, I think what a lot of doctors would definitely appreciate from people like yourself is uh, even just more workshops, uh, mm. online webinars, 
Um, making it fun and interesting, I think, would be a, a really good place to start. And you could really start with, with some good gynos that I know would be def- definitely interested, Justin. Oh, look, I'm, I'm always happy um, to share what little knowledge I have um, with, with those. That little, I wouldn't call it little. <laughs> <laughs> oh look, I'm 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 just a you know basically I'm just a plant guy. Um, I've, I've I've loved plants. This is just one of those plants that I've um you know had a bit of a I've developed a bit of a love affair with. I mean it's uh, 20 years now um, that I've been studying and and uh, investigating cannabis. And you know if cannabis and I were dating, I'd still feel like um um you know. She's maybe given me a kiss on the cheek, but I certainly haven't met the parents. So I, there's just so much more to learn, so much more to learn. And um, it is it is truly one of, you know, out of all of the hundreds and hundreds of medicinal plants that I've investigated and medicinal fungi, um, and there's so many that are absolutely incredible, I still have not come across a plant that is um, as complex and diverse as, as, as this one. Thank you so much for sharing your knowledge today. It's an absolute pleasure, Natasha. Thank you for the opportunity. Thank you. I hope you enjoyed this episode with Justin Sinclair and that it's made you more curious about medicinal cannabis if you weren't before. Curious enough to want to know more. I hope it made you question things and that you learnt lots like I did. Please share this episode with others if you think it will help them. Please subscribe to the Fanny Mechanic channel and if you haven't already, hop over and give the show a fantastic rating. Shoot me a message on Instagram, Dr. Tash, Fanny Mechanic, and join the Fanny Mechanic podcast group on Facebook. Let me know of any topics you'd like to hear, cool people like an interview, or books to read. Until next time, stay fantabulous.